time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. I'm United States Surgeon General Jerome Adams, America's doctor. And all across our nation, we've taken steps together to slow the spread of coronavirus. Now we must continue to take personal responsibility to protect ourselves and our loved ones. Because even though not all of us risk a severe case of coronavirus, we all risk getting it and spreading it to others, maybe without even realizing that we're sick. So if we want to get back to school, back to work, back to worship, and back to overall health. There are things our country needs to do. We need to follow state and local guidelines, take extra precautions if at higher risk, wash our hands frequently, stay six feet from others when we can, and when we can't stay six feet from others, please, I'm begging you, wear a face covering. These small actions will make a big difference. So I'm asking you to say it with me, America. Coronavirus stops with me. You can learn more at coronavirus.gov. Produced by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services at taxpayer expense. I know this is a really hard time for everyone. We're facing a killer virus, economic pain, and all the frustrations of being cooped up at home. Believe me, I have two teenagers to deal with. But the worst thing we can do is let up now, triggering a second coronavirus wave that causes more death and economic chaos. What you're doing is working. You're saving lives. So let's all hang in there, and please, stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Wash my hands, I don't touch my face. At home, shelter in place, social distance, don't go to work. I wear a mask and gloves, stay away from church. I avoid old folks, and should I sneeze? I do it in my elbow or up my sleeve. Six feet apart, that is the rule. And I pray for the day the kids can go back to school. I'm washing my hands like a raccoon with OCD. I've watched Hulu, Roku, Netflix, PBS, and the BBC. I 
slipped out was, you crazy woman, you've ruined my life. <laughs> of course, I immediately apologized <laughs> as soon as I regained consciousness. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. I had scheduled, and and welcome to live radio, I had scheduled uh, for this hour a conversation with um, Deborah Keston, a holistic nutrition researcher, about uh, her award-winning book, Whole Person Integrative Eating, a breakthrough dietary lifestyle to treat the root causes of overeating, overweight, and obesity. And I, I know we've we've talked about this before, this idea of uh, integrative eating. Um, and I don't know what happened, but uh, we were supposed to connect by phone and weren't able to. But I will have coming up in a few minutes, uh, right after the break, a conversation um, with Barbara Fries, who um, wrote a book about uh, industrial strength denial. And we'll talk about that and a lot more. But we do have uh, a few minutes that... Um, we can uh, have some fun with. So I'm uh, going to dig out from the uh, archive here some local music, which we haven't been doing on Fridays, and we're going to try and bring that back soon. Even though we can't do the live music in the studio like we used to do, um, I, I have tried uh, on some Fridays to schedule at 11 o'clock local musical talent and we play some of their recorded music and and talk a little bit and i'll try and get that going again as soon as possible but i am really looking forward to a day when we can actually have live music again on the show but uh in the meantime 
um, and, and I've played some of these songs uh, before from Flint blues artist uh, Greg Nagy, who did a project, uh, a way of dealing with the uh, boredom of quarantine, where he posted a different song on Facebook every day for 30 days, and I collected all the songs that he performed. So they're kind of like live performances, really. Um, in any event, uh, we, we have a few minutes until the break, so I'm going to squeeze in a little something here from Greg Nagy in uh, David music by David Bowie. He, he, Greg told me uh, he was on the show right after he did the 30 songs in 30 days and told me he thought it was a cool way to learn some new songs is to force himself to put one up every day. So here's one of those songs from Flint blues artist Greg Nagy. Ground control the major town Ground control the major town Take your protein pills and put your helmet on Ground control the major town Commencing countdown engines on Check ignition and make God's love be with you
way to go Tell my wife I love her very much She knows Ground control to major time Your circuit's dead There's something wrong Can you hear me, major time? Can you hear me, major time? Can you hear me, major time? Can you hear my voting around my tin can? It's spreading like a plague And POTUS and his lackeys have been nothing if not vague Well then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well Unless you want to bid our free society farewell There is a super bad transmittable contagious awful virus And if we don't act quick and social distance it will mire us In a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July A super bad transmittable contagious awful and if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better... <coughs> now, back in 1918, influenza had its run. But half the docks were busy overseas with World War I. Today we have mass media and scientists to say, if you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away. Super damn important that we practice isolation, because we are asymptomatic while it's an incubation. We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation. It's super damn important that we practice isolation. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised. Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us. In a stretch of quarantine, the last until July. A super bad, transmittable, Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before, where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives. But we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19 where trained medical professionals can register to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. To get through this, we must all do our part. Stay home, stay safe, and save lives. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get the through time it. summer. Program.com 
Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, my guest this hour asks uh, the question, how far will industry leaders go to protect their bottom line in a newly published uh, book, Industrial Strength Denial, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible. She is an environmental attorney and former assistant attorney general for the great state of Minnesota. She joins me now by phone. Her name is Barbara Fries. Barbara, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Tom. Um, The book, Industrial Strength Denial, uh, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible, I, I couldn't help asking myself, in this day and age, what is considered indefensible? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> and I, I don't mean to, to be so silly about it, but but I just wonder. You know, we we accept so many things now that as as being just the way we do it. You're you're absolutely right, and and it is very hard to shock anybody these days. Um, but as far as the, the eight campaigns that I chose, they were cases where the, the facts in question were so uh, clearly um, uh, solved by science or, or by the evidence available. So I didn't really look at anything that was a close call. Uh, and so I look at, for example, and, and was it was it all slavery? Was it all business or corporations or did you include some uh uh, government agencies and it's almost all just the industries that okay. I'm quoting. Okay, yeah, that's and, that's why uh, Flint didn't make the list. Uh, yes, that's, <laughs> that's right. And to the extent that we're talking about government malfeasance, there that's not make a list. Though I do look at the litter gasoline industry, so there's plenty of uh, defense of putting this known cumulative poison into the fuel supply, which, and of course, poisoned generations of people. Well, and and lead was the miracle metal back in the oh, it, 30s, and and um, it was well, uh, it was considered a, a gift of God, and and called that by the industry when they were putting it into the fuel supply. Though at the same time, it was understood even then to be a cumulative, subtle brain poison, and so there was there was quite a dispute back even in the 1920s about whether this this toxic substance should be put into the fuel supply uh the industry this is actually discovered by gm um and it wasn't just fuel it uh, was in paint it was in all kinds of things oh yeah absolutely i mean if i actually had to think really hard do i want to do a chapter on leaded gas or or lead paint um but i I ended up choosing the gasoline but uh yeah there were a lot of lead exposures and and what happened was the leaded gasoline industry really dominated the scientific study and sort of convinced the world that really high lead levels in the blood were perfectly natural and harmless and it took a lot of outsiders to get involved to say that is not true it's not natural it's certainly not harmless and that led to a movement that that got the lead out of the gasoline and out of the paint and out of the cans the, the canned food uh, had lead solder uh, and a lot of other sources so it, it really took quite a lot of pushback um and and what were some of the other examples um of of things that you would consider indefensible and then we and well, we also have to add into that 
um, because I, you already uh, made reference to um, based on scientific evidence, and we have an awful lot of people now who don't trust scientific evidence very much. Well, that's that's true, and, and it wasn't all science denial that I'm writing about, but it's all evidence denial of one form or another. The eight industries, I'll, I'll just go through them real quick that I touch upon. Yeah. One is the slave trade. Um, and I, so I start back in the, in the late 1700s in Britain in particular. I talk also about radium consumption because about a century ago, drinking radium was considered a health fad. Um, then I talk about uh, basic uh, defensive unsafe automobiles by the auto industry, uh, leaded gas, as I mentioned, um, the defensive chlorofluorocarbons, which we now know deplete the ozone layer, um, of course, the tobacco claims that for, for decades denied that there was any harm in smoking. Um, and I also look at Wall Street and its defense of the housing bubble and the various financial instruments that led up to the financial crash of, of 2008. And I end with the fossil fuel industry and its denial of the climate crisis. In in researching this, and, and this is kind of uh, a little bit out of left field, but um, I think we all know stories like the tobacco industry and others that, you know, denied any harm for decades and and put up big campaigns to, to try and uh, um, at least glamorize the product to the point where people didn't pay any attention to the evidence they were hearing. But mm-hmm. did you come across companies that were actually um, doing the right thing? That they would discover there was a problem with something that they were doing that that was profitable, that they could do differently and perhaps still be profitable? I'm sure there are examples of that. I just wondered if you came across a few. Yeah, not exactly. I did come across one situation where the industry finally saw enough evidence of harm and ended up deciding not to uh, produce their product anymore, but that was also that was basically the chemical industry when the ozone hole emerged from Antarctica and the evidence eventually linked it very strongly to chlorofluorocarbons. Um, but the chemical industry wasn't dependent on chlorofluorocarbons. That was just one of their products, and they could phase it out, especially knowing that they were about to get it phased out for them by law, and they could replace it with other products that they could sell. So I, you know, I really am looking at eight industries that are that caused enormous harm and, and denied it. For well, and the chemical industry um, still had PFAS to make. Oh, they had plenty of other <laughs> chemicals that were, were uh, going to pose dangers that they could deny, so that wasn't going to be a problem. Um, and, and so um, the, the chemical uh, industry was one. What were some of the others? Well, in a couple of cases, you found industries that eventually accepted that they were causing the harm that they'd been denying for decades, but then decided that they would just continue to sell as much of their product as possible. Tobacco is the main example there where, you know, decade after decade, from the 50s up to the 90s, they, the tobacco executives would say, first of all, that there was no real proof that their product was harmful, but they would also say, if it was proven to be harmful, we would stop selling it because we are a moral company. I mean, claims of that sort were really common. Then finally in the 90s, they started to realize they didn't even need to claim that. And some of the executives started to admit, well, of course we're going to sell it anyway, um, as long as it's legal to sell. So around 2000 and beyond, and, and there were lawsuits prompting a 
more admissions at this point, the, the tobacco executives started to agree, the main tobacco companies started to admit, yes, uh, our product does in fact kill lots and lots of people and it's addictive. Um, but that did not in any way diminish their enthusiasm for selling the product. I think we are starting to see something similar now among the big oil companies when it comes to climate change. ExxonMobil, for example, spent decades questioning the science, trying to raise doubts about it. Now they, they not only accept the scientific basics, which is that their product is among those really driving this dangerous uh, warming, um, but they claim to support the goals of the International Paris Agreement, which uh, in, would require dramatic reductions in global emissions. Um, that, of course, poses a huge threat to their own uh, future, but when they make their own projections about what they think is going to happen, they don't project that they're going to be selling less or producing less oil or gas. They still see a, a pretty rosy future for their industry. So it's a, it's a form of acceptance on the one hand with a continuing kernel of denial on the other. I, I've um, even seen, and I think it was in fact Exxon, running, uh, running television ads um, talking about how they've they've redirected their research into looking for sustainable types of energy, and then it's like Exxon working for you, you know that oh, that, that right. kind of thing, um, while not changing anything at the pump. Well, they're I mean they are trying to reduce their own emissions, but what they have not done, unlike. British Petroleum, which is the first oil company that's taken the next step, they have not pledged to reduce their production of oil and gas. Um, and so that's a little bit like, you know, a tobacco company deciding to put a no-smoking policy in their corporate lunchroom, but still promoting <laughs> cigarettes as much as possible. I, I think that's sort of where we are right now. Yeah, no smoking, but there's a cigarette machine. Um, there's a cigarette machine, and they're going to try to sell as many as possible to their consumers. Right, exactly. Um, another thing that 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 I wonder about as we're talking about this, Barbara, is the um, this this notion of how far leaders will go to protect the bottom line. Is is there a sense that um, how ugly did some of these things get? Well, you know, if you go back to the slave trade, it doesn't get much uglier than that. Um, and I, the way I try to look at this is to look at the whole range of denials from the most blatant lies to the more subtle self-deceptions. Um, so depending on whether you consider, uh, you know, a good old-fashioned lie uglier than, than a kind of sinister deception, um, that, that makes us a little bit of a hard question to ask. But but obviously, people were, you know, the slave trade was a totally respected industry. Uh, Britain dominated it in the late 1700s when they were confronted with evidence of the brutality of slavery, or, or I should say when the British public was confronted with this evidence. The industry, of course, knew about it. The industry came back and said, we're, we're not brutal. We are actually rescuing these people from Africa. Uh, they want to be uh, purchased. They are enjoying their crossing uh, across the Atlantic on these festive slave ships where they're singing and dancing and eating all this <laughs> delicious food, and, and that they're going to these comfortable plantations, and their lives are much happier than the peasants of Europe. Um, so that I think that gives you a, a sample of just how ugly this can get. Uh, obviously, that was a very long time ago. Um, but, you know, when you think about the tobacco industry, 
selling their product, uh, you know, aggressively marketing it to young kids, and, they, and there's a lot of evidence of, of that sort of thing. You know, they are right now in this country uh, responsible. It's been linked to something like 480,000 deaths a year. Globally, it's millions of deaths a year. So that's getting pretty ugly. You mentioned something uh, almost in passing that I wanted to unpack a little bit. That's self-deception. Um, how, do, how does self-deception play into this? And does it excuse anybody from pressing on with uh, uh, racking up uh, dollars on their bottom line? Well, I I try to separate it from the moral judgment, and, and I don't think anybody reading my book will think I'm giving anybody a moral pass. But I also try to recognize that rationalization, or, or we could just call it bias, is an essential part of human nature. And part of my book is looking at uh, the social psychology in particular. We are, you know, I, I don't come at this with the notion that we're naturally objective unless we're biased and that's morally wrong. I come at it with the assumption that we are all biased when it comes to our own self-interest and our own tribal loyalties and that it takes a lot of work to become objective. And if you're not doing that work, you're not, you're not likely achieving it. So one of the points that I try to make is that the corporation itself as an institution involves a lot of aspects that enhance our natural biases, that enhance our natural tribal animosities toward others um, that that reduce our sense of uh, social responsibility. There's division of labor, for example. There's the division of ownership from management, so that you've got shareholders that are far away, managers who are thinking, well, my responsibility isn't to society, it's to my shareholders. You've got a, a powerful justifying ideology that that has gotten stronger um, in over the decades, at least uh, in terms of influencing policy, arguing that the market can do everything and the government shouldn't interfere with it. Uh, so, so I really kind of look at this as, as a variety of things. And, and, and again, maybe to return to tobacco, you have different kinds of denial. On the one hand, you have the tobacco industry saying, well, th- there is no proof this is harmful. On the other, you have, I actually start the book with a quote from a tobacco ex- executive saying, who knows what you would do if you didn't smoke? You might beat your wife. You might drive cars <laughs> fast. Um, and, and I put that in this category of, of this kind of easy rationalization, you know, self-deception that makes it easier for these folks to sell a product they know is going to kill a lot of folks. You know, I've got one that's even more insidious. For over 50 years, I was, well, maybe not over, but, but nearly 50 years, I was a militant smoker. I liked smoking. Was I addicted? Probably. But, oh, yeah. but uh, you know, and, until fairly recently. And it really didn't matter to me. I knew what the dangers were, but I liked smoking. Mm-hmm. And, and the industry try, gave you a lot of reasons to continue, and that was one of the things that we saw in the documents, that they were working very hard to provide ways to help the smoker overcome their concerns about health and to effectively rationalize what they were continuing to do. And, and of course, the nicotine didn't hurt. But what I'm saying is that, I, that there, was a, there was a market there that, um, that despite the evidence, even if there hadn't been attempts to cover that evidence or at least mitigate it or minimize it in some way, that would just blast through 
the warnings and the evidence and and say I'm going to do this because it's my choice and I like doing it. Mm-hmm. Um which which kind of brings me in a weird path around to this um what has a bigger impact on companies changing their behavior um regulation or market forces when it becomes popular not to use fossil fuels um you know when it becomes cooler not to smoke um you know, yeah. do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. Well, I, the way I try to look at this, certainly, well, with tobacco, it's, it's different than fossil fuels. So let me try to answer those differently. Okay. With tobacco, um, you, what we found was that uh, you, we really needed lots of social signals that discouraged smoking in order to go from a, a world where about 43, 44% of adults were smoking, which would have been in the mid-60s to a world where more like 14% of adults were smoking uh, today. And that happened through a series of little tiny laws that made it, that discouraged smoking and, and, you know, discouraged the advertising, tried to change the social norm around smoking. So the laws had a a role and, and the laws were necessary to push back on the various market forces that were promoting smoking and this, and the social norms with climate change, um, you know, the markets can help reduce our emissions, but as long as, for example, there's no price on carbon dioxide, which is true for most of the country, then the markets are blind to continuing to destroy the climate. So in, in a case like that, you absolutely need laws because there are, there is such, a, uh, there are such market failures that prevent us from addressing the problem. I was watching a movie recently, and at the beginning of the movie, they had, you know, the rating and uh, some cautions about some of the things that were included in the movie, uh, warnings, basically, uh, parental warnings mm-hmm. or whatever. And it talked about um, violence, sexual situations, uh, fear. Uh, there were a couple others, and I was just stunned. They had smoking. Really? Listed as That's one of the warnings, you know, something you were going to see in this movie. Yeah. Uh, well, what's funny here is, uh, or interesting maybe, is that among the ways that the tobacco industries got smoking to be so popular was when they worked with Hollywood. And, and Hollywood, of course, recognized pretty early that smoking could be quite elegant, it could be quite dramatic, they could use it for all sorts of ways. So uh, cigarettes in movies were promoted by the industry. And I would imagine that when people see smoking, they are, it, it does sort of promote the social normalization of smoking. Um, so it may seem kind of weird and extreme to, to see that listed among these other factors. But I would I wouldn't be surprised if there is actually some science that supports that that smoking like if your kids see a movie where everybody's smoking they might be more likely to pick it up. Well, yeah, if you you know back in the day when you know everywhere you looked you saw you know um these these cultural icons James Bond and the Rat Pack and all of these people mm-hmm. and they were all smoking and they were all cool and if I smoke yeah. I'll be cool too. Exactly. And that's what teenagers and, and most of the people who started smoking did so before they were 18. Um, that's how teenagers view it. And, of course, they would be particularly susceptible to peer pressure. 
Now, I mentioned the warning label on the uh, on movies, but um, how much of an impact do, do regulations requiring labeling, like famously with cigarettes, the 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 cautions on the sides of the packs that they had to print. Um, mm-hmm. How much impact does that have on getting companies to change their behavior? Yeah. Well, they, those labels don't try to get companies to change their behavior. Of course, they're trying to get consumers to change their behavior. And I think it's, it's probable that over time, the, the written warnings on the tobacco pack have had diminished impact on, on discouraging smoking. What's interesting is a law was passed, uh, I think it was 2009, um, giving the FDA the authority to put pictures on tobacco packs, pictures that are, are sort of gruesome representations of the kinds of tumors and things you can get from smoking. Yeah. Um, and uh, other countries have that. done that. And I think that's been found to be quite uh, effective in other countries. The tobacco industry challenged it, and they said the pictures, the, the court decided that the pictures were too likely to evoke an emotional response, sent the FDA back, and, and uh, they've been apparently trying to find more attractive tumors to put on their, their packages. Um, <laughs> so we don't yet have packages. Uh, one, one other thing about the, the writing, the written warnings on the packets, is that while the industry at the time, and they came about in the 60s, while the industry at the time publicly opposed adding these warnings, the tobacco lawyers were actually quite happy because it gave them a new defense to the lawsuits. They could argue that, hey, consumers were warned. They assumed the risk, and that would help them um, avoid, avoid liability, and they succeeded on those grounds for decades. We've talked quite a bit about smoking and about uh, gas uh, or, or fossil fuels and, and climate change and, chem- and chemicals, but what were some of the other industries? Um, well, as at? I mentioned, about a century ago, there was uh, an industry around radium, um, the, oh, the yeah. extremely radioactive element, and there was this kind of mystique around it. It was considered a stimulant, a health stimulant. Uh, the company, the top company that was refining it and selling it, um, actually opened up what they called a free radium clinic in Pittsburgh in 1913. And they would inject people with radium. They would give them radium to drink. Uh, they wanted them to consume radium because if you if you used it, if you didn't actually consume it, you didn't have enough demand for their product. So they were, and they were saying that this was something that you could use to treat, you know, Everything from arthritis to <laughs> insanity, and to, I mean, ultimately it became a part of the, something sold to consumers. You could get it in toothpaste, bath salts, and a lot of people would drink radium. It was marketed, in fact, a lot for male sexual dysfunction because it was considered a stimulant, and uh, it was put into it was put into rectal suppositories. I mean, there were many ways to get radium into your body. And then eventually, it took some years, but eventually the deaths associated with this exposure became more public. There was one very high-profile uh, industrialist who drank, who had enough money that he could afford to poison himself completely with drinking radium. And uh, his facial bones began to dissolve. This was often the way it happened to people. Died very gruesomely, and that hit the headlines in the 30s, and, and that helped put an end to this fad. More with environmental attorney and author Barbara Fries straight ahead.
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck up. If you are sick with COVID-19 or think you might have it, take steps to help protect other people from getting sick. Stay home except to get medical care. Call the doctor before visiting. Separate yourself from others who live with you. Wear a mask to protect others. Cover your coughs and sneezes with a tissue and clean your hands right away. Avoid sharing items with other people in your home. This includes things like towels and bedding. Be sure dishes are washed in hot water or the dishwasher before anyone else uses them. Stay aware of how you feel. If you start to have difficulty breathing or if you are worried about your health, call your doctor. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490.
Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. The Tom Sumner Program.com. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with environmental attorney and author Barbara Fries straight ahead. Also, radium was used to make glow-in-the-dark paint. And a lot of people are more familiar with the example of the, the young women who were hired to put to paint that radium paint onto clock faces and watch dials. And they would put the paintbrushes between their lips to, to, put, to make a point of the paintbrush. And many of those young women died, again, very gruesomely. And uh, fortunately, well, not fortunately, but there was a lot of attention brought to these deaths. And that did finally bring about some regulations limiting it. But that's um, but that speaks to another point. Um, how often was it the case, as with radium, where perhaps it wasn't known what the harms were until there right. were just well, stacks of bodies? Right. In, in the case of radium, um, I should I should stress that. They did know at the beginning that, I mean, as soon as it was discovered by the Curies, Pierre and, and Marie Curie in 1898, they immediately discovered that this stuff uh, burns your flesh um, because they, they accidentally burned themselves. And so the, they, the one thing they knew about this stuff was that it was extremely radioactive, way more radioactive than uranium, and that it killed living flesh. And, and so where I, I see quite a bit of denial was this notion that not knowing anything else about this element, they could go ahead and try to, you know, start injecting it into people and, and just assume it was going to be healthy. Um, so, so I certainly consider some denial there. I think they, they really should have known. And, and in fact, very early on, they did know that this product accumulated in the body. So this wasn't just some fleeting thing that, that they could say was going to be good for you. By the way, once the, the young women started dying, their, again, their facial bones often dissolving or growing these large, horrible growths, um, once the young women painting the dial started dying, the industry that hired them claimed that it wasn't, have, didn't have anything to do with the radium and that these women, that they had hired a lot of uh, women who were already sickly, they were hiring cripples out of the goodness of their heart because the work was fairly easy. And when the uh, women's conditions uh, progressed naturally, they said, they were unfairly blamed for their, for their earlier kindness. I should point out that by this time, not only did these women have these extremely unusual symptoms of dissolving bones, but they were exhaling radioactivity. They had radioactive breath. Wow. It's it's just it's hard to even imagine, it, and it's one thing you know when we start out we discover new things and and we think it's a miracle like lead, um, and and uh, there have been other things well nuclear power, um, yeah, it, you know it 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 has a lot of pluses it has a lot of benefits but the negative doesn't have a solution. Well, and, and you have institutions there uh, that have an enormous incentive to celebrate the benefits and not as many institutions there to investigate and publicize and control the harms. And that's a big part of the problem. I mean, with lead, while it was considered a gift of God to, to put leaded gas, 
I mean, it was called the gift of God by the industry. Um, when they put tetraethyl lead into the gasoline supply, lead itself had been known for a couple thousand years to be a subtle accumulative brain poison. So uh, the industry really tried to hide the fact that they were putting lead in the gasoline. That's why they called it ethyl. They didn't, they didn't call it leaded <laughs> gas. And they actually tried to uh, keep the, those who were talking about it to keep the word lead out of the conversation. But again, it, it, lead was something that was promoted for uh, all kinds of things. So we mentioned paint, but lead pipes. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was considered for infrastructure. Lead was the new magic metal that would last for a long time and hold up well. Right. It's had, it has had a lot of uses, and, yeah. and it's very useful if it just didn't, uh, you know, poison people. Now, you said something a moment ago um, about there being a, a lot of forces on the side of promoting promoting these new products um, as, as they're discovered and even when it's uncovered that they may be harmful that continue to promote these things and not as many organizations or not as many resources talking about the negative impacts is that changing now uh i i don't think it really is because um, when, I'm, when I'm talking about the forces promoting the products, I'm talking, of course, about the corporations and corporate power, corporate wealth, you know, continues to grow relative, I think, to other sectors of our society. Um, you know, there are, we do have independent scientists working in academia, often funded by the government, but they're frequently under attack uh, by the industries and, and sometimes by government if they don't like the results that they're, they're getting. Um, so, you know, I think it's important that we continue to try to reinforce and strengthen independent science. I would add independent journalism. I mean, certainly we're seeing a crisis in local newspapers and, and other forms of traditional journalism that are declining. Fortunately, there, there are new forms of journalism that may be taking their place. But, um, I, you know, th- I, I do feel, especially with respect to climate, and, and I have a personal history uh, with with respect to working on, on climate issues. But I, I really do think it's, um, you know, we, we really do need to be investing a lot more in regulatory resources, in putting together, in, in funding independent science and journalism, uh, in paying attention to these issues, because it's just so easy for them to get um, ignored uh, and and just not be studied the way they need to be. Would... Um what prompted you to write this book and um, to do all the research an, going into it? Yeah, I'm, I'm an environmental attorney and worked uh, at the state of Minnesota um, for a number of years when I, when I was a young lawyer and started out uh, as an assistant attorney general in Minnesota. And when I was there, we ended up having a proceeding where we were trying to figure out how dangerous burning coal was for our environment. And we burned a lot of coal and still do burn some in our power plants, like most states. Uh, And we uh, looked at climate change, and the coal industry brought a handful of scientists to Minnesota to testify that climate change was not a problem, and if it happened, it would be mild, and, and we'd enjoy it, and that, in fact, 
CO2 in the atmosphere was great. We should, we should actually promote it because it would, it's good for the plants, they would argue. And, so, and, and, and also at the same time, they were dismissing the mainstream scientists saying that they were biased politically or financially or in some other sort of vague way. By the way, the world had already signed the uh, treaty at the Earth Summit saying we're going to fight global warming based on the science of all of these really thousands of other scientists. So basically I was confronted then with climate denial by the coal industry. And in the years that followed, I did a lot of other work uh, related to coal and trying to promote climate policies and whatnot. And so I saw a lot of climate denial over the years, and that really sparked my interest in this as a a political phenomenon, a social phenomenon, a psychological phenomenon, and uh, started to got me start wondering, well, to what extent has this kind of industrial denial affected humanity in the past? Where, you know, how far from reality has it taken us? How have we gotten past it if we did get past it? Uh, and, and how is it actually manifested? What did people actually say when they were defending their industries? So I would really do focus a lot in the book in, in specifically looking at the denials and the rationalizations and, and quoting the industry members to, to uh, I think, help put some of today's denial in historic context. Well, Barbara, this is fascinating. I can't believe how fast our time has gone, and we're just about out of it. But I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more. Obviously, the book is a great place to start. It's called Industrial Strength Denial, uh, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible by Barbara Fries. Um, is, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about about you and and the book and and other work that you've done and will be doing. Do you have a website? I do. It is barbarafreeze.com, and my last name is spelled F-R-E-E-S-E. Well, Barbara, thank you for spending this time with me today. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Tom. I've enjoyed our talk. Take care. Again, that was... Um, environmental attorney and a former Minnesota assistant attorney general. She is the author of the New York Times notable book, Coal, A Human History, and now the newly published Industrial Strength Denial, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight
Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 